This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Tad Collister has been married to his wife, Catherine, for 53 years. They are the parents of six children and have 29 grandchildren whom they love very much. He grew up in Glendale, California and loves sports. He currently plays racquetball regularly and has participated in the worldwide senior games three times, which I think is very cool. (laughs) He graduated from Brigham Young University with a degree in accounting, from UCLA with a, a law degree, and from New York University with a master's in tax law. He practiced law for 34 years in the Los Angeles area. Brother Collister is the author of a number of excellent books, The Infinite Atonement, which is one of my personal favorites, The Inevitable Apostasy, and A Case for the Book of Mormon, to name a few. He has served as a bishop, state president, general authority, and recently served as the general Sunday school president for the church. He currently teaches the missionary preparation class for his stake, those lucky future elders and sisters. <laughs> maybe, they're well, learning, maybe they're learning the new word for endurance. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen to me. <laughs> welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm Tara McCosland and a very warm welcome to our special guest, Brother Collister. Thank you so much for being here, Brother Collister. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tara. Thank you for the good work you're doing. I appreciate that. I know that you're a, a busy guy. So again, I'm grateful that you take the time to share your experience and testimony. And you have vast experience. As I mentioned in your bio, you have been a lawyer for a number of years. You have a great deal of formal education, but you've also served in a variety of church callings throughout your life, including serving in general positions of the church. So you bring with you a vast background of secular intellectual experience, but also spiritual experience. I appreciate when we can bring uh, the mind and the heart to these conversations. So that is the plan in this conversation as we move forward. And just kind of to start us off, in the introduction of the Book of Mormon, we read this quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. He said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on the earth and the keystone of our religion. And many leaders of the church, including yourself, have said that the church essentially rises or falls on the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. So today we're going to discuss some of what the opponents have said of uh, the Book of Mormon, and we're going to explore some of the evidences of the Book of Mormon's authenticity and discuss why having a testimony of this book is so critical in these last days. Brother Collister, when did you first gain a testimony of the Book of Mormon? Well, I think uh, I always had a belief in the Book of Mormon, but uh, when I was 16, I read the Book of Mormon for the first time, and I remember reading the story of the 2,000 Sons of Helaman. You can imagine how that would appeal to a 16-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And after I read that story, I remember standing up and this voice came to my mind. It was not an audible voice, but the voice came to my mind that said, that story is true. And for me, that was really the first, I would say, significant spiritual witness I had that the Book of Mormon was 
the word of God. And most of the time, I think spiritual witnesses just come line upon line, reason upon reason and spirit by spirit. But that was a very significant experience for me as a young boy. I love that. How many times do you suppose you've read the Book of Mormon in your lifetime? Have you ever tried to count? <laughs> no, I haven't. And honestly, I, I think more important than how many times we've read it is uh, uh, how intense has been our reading of it mm-hmm. and studying it and pondering it and discussing it. And I, I think much more than turning the pages is do we ponder it? Do we discuss it? Do we live it? And uh, so I enjoy studying the Book of Mormon probably more than I would call reading the Book of Mormon. That's a great point. We're very often encouraged to slow down, to really ponder, whether it be on a page or a single verse. I think we have had occasions where we've had, like for instance, President Hinckley <laughs> gave us the direction. I don't remember how many years ago to read the, the Book of Mormon in a year. And that is good. But I do believe, as you say, that being able to really treasure up the word and even if it's a single verse, connecting with God is the purpose as we read this great book. In fact, Nephi gave a great scripture. Remember, he said, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. And I thought, as I kind of tried to feast upon that scripture, I thought, how can the words of Christ tell us all things that we can do? Can you go in the Book of Mormon and Alma and find out who your wife will be or in <laughs> Book of Mosiah and find out what career you should pursue. And I thought, but it really does tell us all things we should do in a much more important way. The scriptures, including the Book of Mormon, teach us correct principles. And they invite the spirit into our life as we read the scriptures. So as we feast upon the word of God and we learn correct principles and the spirit comes into our life, it helps us apply those principles in every situation of life, who we should select as a spouse, what career we should pursue, etc. I'm curious, is there a, a specific memory that you have of needing an answer and you found that answer and direction while reading in the Book of Mormon? There is, uh, in fact, more than one, but uh, my wife and I were, um, parents of six kids and uh, our eight-year-old daughter came home one day with a report card in her hand and she had a check under the column that said handwriting meaning she didn't have neat handwriting and she was crying and sobbing because she was a very sensitive little girl mm-hmm. we thought well how can we help her and a scripture in the book of Mormon came to mind And we went to Ether chapter 12, and we talked about Moroni, who had a similar weakness. He said, I can speak, but I I can't write. And I'm afraid the people are going to make fun of me. And he said, and when I said this, the Lord said unto me, fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace, meaning my enabling power of the atonement, is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, or children, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto them their weakness that they may be humble. And my grace or atoning power is sufficient for all that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong into them. We said, do you believe this? He said, yes, I do. 
So we made up that scripture, put it on a poster in a room, and uh, said, okay, every night we let us review your homework. The Lord expects us to do our part. It's not just going to make it a strength. And if you don't do nice handwriting, will you do it over again? She said, yes. You'll include it in your prayers. The Lord will help you make this a strength. My wife bought her calligraphy set to kind of whet her appetite about improving her handwriting. And she was in third grade at the time. In sixth grade, we went to the graduation exercises for a little elementary school. And the principal said, I'm not going to give certificates to the five finest handwriters in the school and called forth Angela Collister. Hmm. And then she went on to college. I remember going to her dorm room and seeing that scripture up on her board. She became a primary president. And she shared with us, she said, I was sharing the story with the primary kids. And she said, I started to cry. And she said, the reason I'm crying is not because the Lord helped an eight-year-old girl approve her handwriting, but because the Lord helped an eight-year-old girl know that whatever her weakness was in life, with his help, it can be made of strength. And so that scripture became a reality for us in our family, not just some abstract wording uh, in the Book of Mormon. I love that story. I have four children and I'm in the thick of <laughs> trying to figure out how to help them become the people that God in, intends yeah. for them to become. And I think if there's any time I feel like I need the Lord's help, it is most often as a mother, especially in these last days. It is a, a trying time to be a parent. I think it always was, but, <laughs> but thank you so much. The Lord will bless us as we turn to the Book of Mormon for answers. Well, and so kind of as a follow-up question to that, um, why is it so critical that we have a testimony of the Book of Mormon in the here and now in these last days? Well, I, you know, you quoted earlier that Joseph Smith talked about the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. And I re believe the reason it's the keystone of our religion is because it's the keystone of our testimonies. Once we know the Book of Mormon is true, then we know that Jesus is the Christ. Then we know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Then we know the church was restored to the earth. So it's the foundation of our testimony of the Savior, the prophet Joseph Smith, and the restoration of the church. And all other questions are secondary. Once you know that, have the conviction of the Book of Mormon, you know those primary truths. And you may not know the historical answer to this or a little doctrinal insight to this, but you have the primary questions have been answered in your life. I was going to say, just to give another example, if you are a Christian and you read the Bible and you know that Jesus is the Christ, once you know that, you know he's the Savior and Redeemer of the world, then you may not be able to answer the question, well, why did he select Judas, who we knew would betray him as a thief if he was perfect? Why did he do that? Or why did he select Peter as his chief apostle and cut off the ear of the high priest servant? Or why did he say, don't go preach the gospel to the Gentiles? You may not have the answers to those questions, but those are all secondary questions. Right. Once right. you know Jesus is the Christ, you know he's the savior and redeemer of the world and the son of God. And so the same reasoning applies to the Book of Mormon. Once you know it's true, you know Jesus is the Christ, Joseph of the prophet, the church was restored, and all those other questions that the critics come up with are secondary and lesser questions. You have now questions, but they aren't doubts in your mind. That makes sense. Yeah, I really like that. 
You have written a book uh, titled A Case for the Book of Mormon, and you have spoken to this in general conference. Um, You gave a BYU devotional uh, some years ago. I know that this is a topic that you feel very strongly about, and you've studied out a great deal some of the opposing arguments of the origins of the Book of Mormon. So for our listeners, I would love for you to just share some of those arguments and what some of the counter arguments are from a believing perspective. Well, I appreciate that. And that's particularly interesting to an attorney or what are the arguments for and against. And initially the arguments uh, against about the origin of the Book of Mormon were that Joseph Smith was, and I quote uh, from various contemporary uh, people Joseph Smith was an ignoramus. He was an impudent knave. He was stupid. He was uneducated. And therefore, yes, he was the author of the Book of Mormon and look what you got. And then all of a sudden, not too many years later, people started to look at the Book of Mormon and say, wow, this has got a lot of historical complexity. This has got a lot of profound doctrine. This has got a lot of majestic language. Uh, That thing about Joseph Smith being ignorant and so forth, that's not going to fly. We need to come up with another argument. And the new argument must be that somebody much more intelligent than Joseph Smith wrote it. So maybe it was Oliver Cowdery. You know, he was an attorney. He was a school teacher. And maybe he wrote it. But then the problem was Oliver Cowdery said, I I was described for most all the Book of Mormon as it was – dictated by the prophet Joseph Smith. And then he said, yeah, I saw the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. And then Joseph Smith had some other scribes. Well, if Joseph Smith didn't write it, what were those other scribes doing? So that argument failed and uh, is no longer really used. So then it was Sidney Rigdon. There's our guy. He was a theologian. He was an orator. He was a scripturian. I bet he's the one who wrote the Book of Mormon. The problem was that the Book of Mormon came forth in March of 1830. The church was organized in April of 1830. And six months later, Parley P. Pratt, who had been one of the parishioners of Sidney Rigdon, takes to him a Book of Mormon, introduces it to him. And his daughter recounts the experience and said, I saw my father take the Book of Mormon, read a few pages and throw it on the ground and said, I don't believe a word of this. (laughs) Later, of course, he did believe it. Join the church. So we have many historical sources. The, the irony of that argument is that Sidney Rigdon was converted by the very book he was supposed to have written. <laughs> so that argument went down the tube, so to speak. So then it was, he copied it from the Solomon Spalding manuscript, which was kind of a story of ancient Romans who were headed for Great Britain and they were blown off course and landed in North America and started a civilization. And the response would be, well, just compare the Book of Mormon with the Solomon Spalding manuscript and see if they're the same. But the critics said, oh, well, we can't, we can't, because the Solomon Spalding manuscript has been lost. Just take our word for it. Joseph Smith copied it. Well, then in the 1880s, what should be found in the papers of E.B. Howe and his estate, one of the ones who claimed that the manuscript was lost, but the Solomon Spalding manuscript. Hmm. 
and James Fairchild, who was the president of Oberlin College and I think an L.L. Rice, they compared it. They weren't members of the church and said, we couldn't find any resemblance between the two in general or in detail. So that argument went by the wayside. Then the argument arose, well, he's, you know, Joseph Smith suffering from a mental disorder. And that mental disorder gives him the ability to, uh, to write the Book of Mormon. And of course, there was no evidence that Joseph Smith suffered from a mental disorder. And there was no evidence that because you have a mental disorder, it can take an untrained author and all of a sudden make him a skilled author. So that argument failed. Then the real argument came. And it's 100 years after Joseph Smith dies. And Von Brody says, you know what? Joseph Smith was a genius. He was an intellectual genius who read from numbers of books and copied stories and ideas from these books and was able to write the Book of Mormon. Now it's interesting in response to that is, all the contemporaries of Joseph Smith said he was, I quote, an ignoramus, an impudent knave, stupid, unlearned, uneducated. But when that argument failed, now all of a sudden, 100 years later, this same Joseph Smith is a genius because none of the other arguments worked. So now he's a genius who read all of these books, but it's interesting, his mother said he wasn't a great reader, he was a great thinker. Mm -hmm. And we have all these books that he's supposedly supposed to have taken stories and ideas from, but it's interesting, we have no link. No link that he went to this library and got this book or had a conversation with this person about this book. So that's the current argument on the table that Joseph Smith was a genius, he was creative, and that here he is, he wrote the Book of Mormon. And I asked my friends who don't believe in the church who left and I said, I just want to ask you this question. Do you honestly believe that Joseph Smith at age 23, who had a limited education, who was on the edge of the frontier trying to eke out a living, wrote the historical complexity of the Book of Mormon with all its doctrinal insights, with his majestic statements that are put on people's refrigerator doors and mirrors, that he did this with no notes in front of him, totally dictated it off the top of his head in 65 days with only one draft and minor corrections. You honestly believe Joseph Smith did that? Whose contemporaries claimed he was an ignoramus, an impotent knave? And none of them could look me in the eye and say yes. <laughs> because it's a ridiculous argument when you look at the history. So the only true argument left is that Joseph Smith, who was a good man and probably very bright, but uneducated, was uh, inspired by God to translate this book by the gift and power of God. And therefore, it has this historical complexity and this profound doctrine and radiates with the spirit of truth. And if someone believes in the Bible, the same spirit that will convince them the Bible is true is the same spirit that will convince them the Book of Mormon is true because they both have the same divine origin. That's more than you wanted. So No, I loved every second of that. I had Stephen Harper on this podcast uh, last year and he, he said something interesting. We were talking about the first vision and other evidence of Joseph Smith's prophetic call. And he said, it's not that smart people believe in the vision and dumb people don't and vice versa. He just said, essentially, what evidence 
will we choose to accept or reject? There is so much evidence to suggest Joseph Smith, the unlearned farm boy at 23 years of age, would not have been able to produce a book like the Book of Mormon. Anyone that's written anything of any length. Now, you've written how many books? I was trying to count as I was getting ready for this. It's six. And can I just add one thing here that you brought up? Is when I finished this book, A Case for the Book of Mormon, my secretary said to me, do you know how many drafts you had of that book? I said, no, I don't. She said, 72. You had 70 <laughs> drafts of that book. And I thought, whoa, it took me many years of research, two to three years of constant writing with multitudinous notes in front of me, 72 drafts, years of school and education. And people want to tell me that Joseph Smith translated this off the top of his head with no notes in front of him in 65 days. That's not something I can believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think there it is right there. Try and write a book and you tell us, you come back to us, let us know how you feel about that, <laughs> about that process. I believe that there is a great deal of compelling evidence that suggests that the Book of Mormon is a true, authentic book. But can you share some examples of what you personally feel is some of the most compelling evidence of the Book of Mormon's truthfulness? I will. I, and in doing this, I, I do so with the understanding that the spirit to me is the greatest evidence. Yes. But I don't think the spirit works in a vacuum. I think the more we have facts at our disposal, the more we reason things out, that facts and reason can help us receive an endowment of the, of the spirit in even greater measure. Yes, yes. So I think some of the evidences, uh, one of the evidences, uh, I think, is just, and to me, maybe the greatest evidence other than the Spirit is the profound doctrine that you find in the Book of Mormon. And uh, I think we have some insights into the atonement that you just don't get from the Bible. From the Bible, you, you learn that the atonement was redemptive, that it redeemed us from death and it redeemed us from sin. And the Book of Mormon teaches that. But the Book of Mormon also teaches us that the atonement had enabling powers, powers to comfort and strengthen us in our weaknesses, our afflictions, our temptations. And it also had the power to take our weaknesses and convert them to strengths and perfect us. In fact, that's the very last chapter of the Book of Mormon. You think, what's Moroni going to try and tell us in the last chapter, his concluding verses? The most important thing of this whole book, he says, come into Christ and be perfected in him. And then he tells us, by the grace or enabling power of Christ, you're perfected in him. And so the Book of Mormon gives us some overwhelming insights and sermons. Maybe King Benjamin's sermon on the atonement is the greatest sermon that we have in recorded scripture. And then we have like Jacob's allegory of the olive tree. You know, when I, when I read that, I have to get out a pen and paper and map that thing out, <laughs> follow it. And for someone to say, look me in the face and tell me, you think Joseph Smith dictated that off the top of his head? Absolutely no way. Incredible allegory on the, on the house of Israel, the scattering and gathering. And Alma 32, the incredible sermon on faith, being compared to a seed. And then, of course, incredible insights about baptism and the, why infant baptism shouldn't take place. And so we have all these profound doctrinal truths in the Book of Mormon, many of which 
clear up omissions or uh, incorrect understandings of the doctrine at the time of Joseph Smith. Many of them cleared up. For example, sprinkling and pouring was a very common thing at the time of Joseph Smith. But the Book of Mormon clarifies that, that it should be by immersion. Or what baptismal prayer do you give? Where do you find that in the Bible? There's nowhere in there. The Book of Mormon fills it in. Or what covenants do you make when you're baptized? Not really found in the Bible, but found in the Book of Mormon. And uh, the Book of Mormon continues to fill in the gaps. And that's what Nephi said. He said many plain and precious things would be taken away from the Bible. And there would be books in the latter days that would restore them. And the Book of Mormon is one key one. So I'd say the doctrine is one critical, key, profound evidence of the truth of the Book of Mormon. Other evidences include archaeological findings. You know, and and I think it becomes all the stronger when people argued against it. You know, Joseph Smith wrote on gold plates. Boy, did they ever have a good laugh about that one. (laughs) You know, oh, gold plates, come on. And we know they wrote on papyrus and parchments. You know, this was a dead giveaway. It was wrong. And then all of a sudden, uh, the plates of King Darius in 518 BC made out of gold and silver and located in what? A stone box are discovered. Oh, no. And then all these other plates are found, Isaiah plates of what brass and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all of a sudden we realize that many ancients wrote on metal plates. So you never hear that argument anymore. They don't want to talk about that one. Mm-hmm. And then the next one that made fun of, in fact, Heber J. Grant said they used to make fun of him because uh, he believed in a book that talked about the ancient inhabitants of America having cement. And he said, his friend said, come on, you're educated. Why would you possibly believe in that? And then Heber J. Grant has a general conference talk. And he said, I, I told him that maybe he didn't believe it, but I knew the book of Mormon was true. And someday my grandchildren would probably learn about cement in ancient civilizations. But he said, just recently, my counselor was in Teotihuacan and he saw the cement pyramids and he saw the cement drains and he saw the cement house as a place where my wife and I had been. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk about that argument anymore because <laughs> it was one more proof. For the Very inconvenient. <laughs> and then another one that was, I always smile as it came to pass, the phrase. It's used like 1,400 times in the Book of Mormon. Right. <laughs> and Mark Twain said, you know, if you took that out and all it would be, it'd be a pamphlet. <laughs> People said, there just shows you Joseph Smith, you know, was just tedious and repetitious. And then one day I start reading in Genesis 38, 39, and I find the phrase, and it came to pass eight times in one chapter. And then I decided to read more about it. And I realized all of a sudden the phrase, and it came to pass, appears 1,200 times in the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden we find out, that the phrase, and it came to pass, that people thought was just a tedious phrase, was a phrase that was used in ancient times. Thus, one more evidence that this was an ancient book. And then, uh, you know, we have other examples of people making fun of Alma, you know. Uh, Alma, we all know Alma was a woman's name. Everybody knows that. Joseph Smith was just off his rocker when he has two men named Alma, you know. And uh, then all of a sudden, they're doing diggings for the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think it was about 1961. They find a deed that's signed, and it's signed by Alma Ben Judah, which means Alma 
the son of Judah. And all of a sudden, wow. It's like the critics never made that argument anymore. It's gone. And then uh, the argument's made, well, the, the Book of Mormon mentions horses and cattle and steel, and these things haven't been found in archaeological discoveries. So I decided to do some research and find out what percentage of ancient American archaeological sites have been uncovered. Well, it's less than 1%, less than 1%. Hmm. So it'd be like doing a survey of the United States. Let's just say you did a survey in Georgia of 1% of the entire United States, all in Georgia. And then I told you, Terry, you know what? Uh, I can tell you after I did my survey, there's no redwood forests in the United States. There's no big lakes. There's no Everglades. There's no gold mines. I can tell you without certainty because in my 1%, I didn't see any of it. And you'd say, how foolish, mm-hmm. how foolish. And it's interesting that there's a double standard here because if you think about Moses, where do you read about Moses in any historical findings outside the Book of Mormon? I mean, outside the the Bible. What historical documents do we have of Moses? What archaeological findings do we have of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years? We know where some of their campsites were. You know how much archaeological evidence we have? About zero. Hmm. Yet Christians all over the world, they believe the story of Moses. I believe the story of Moses. They believe the story of the Exodus. But the Lord reveals truth line upon line, precept upon precept. And in the meantime, we have to have some faith. But he's given us some evidences here saying, in due time, these things will come forth as we've seen it's been happening. So those are just some evidences that come to mind. Plus, we have, of course, the witnesses. The uh, When I grew up, I thought there was six or seven statements of the witnesses. Now I realize there's over 200 statements. Really? Of the 11 witnesses that we have record that they either saw the plates or handled the plates, depending whether the three or the eight witnesses, and how some of them, their lives were put on the line, reputations were put on the line, yet they remain true to the very, very end that what they said was absolutely correct. Powerful witness. Imagine having 11 witnesses on the witness stand in court that mm-hmm. all said the same thing in the same way and were reputable men. It'd be pretty powerful. You know, it's interesting to me, and I didn't know that there were that many uh, statements. You said over 200 statements yeah. from the witnesses. But of those witnesses, how many of them left the church? Some of them eventually came back, but how many of them left the church? Uh, I honestly can't tell you with accuracy how many left the church. Of course, of the key witnesses, we know, uh, you know Oliver Cowdery, we have Martin Harris, we have David Whitmer who left. David Whitmer did not come back, but was true to his testimony to the very, very end. Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery did come back. But it's interesting, even at a time when they left the church, and this would be their golden opportunity to right. Joseph as a fraud, if they had wanted to, they never did. But they underwent the persecution uh, to remain true to their testimonies, to even on their deathbeds, which you think, how many people are going to lie on their deathbed? You know, they're right. on the deathbed reaffirming the testimony that they saw the angel. And that's the point that I wanted to emphasize is that I don't know what incentive or motivation these men who left the church would have had to stay true 
to that testimony unless it was the truth, <laughs> unless they had actually witnessed the plates. And they certainly had their issues with Joseph Smith. If they had had any opportunity to out him, they would have in that regard. And so I, I feel like so often we're quite flippant about the testimonies of the witnesses beyond the ones that we have record of in the beginning pages of the Book of Mormon. There were a couple of women and people who handled the plates, who saw angels, they never recanted those testimonies. I would love to just mention also, and you can tell us more about this, but Emma, Emma was a great witness to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. What can you tell us about her witness of the Book of Mormon? Well, I think one of her uh, witnesses was that uh, she said that Joseph Smith couldn't write a coherent letter. Everybody yeah, <laughs> would know. She would know. So she said, he couldn't write a coherent letter. Tell me how he wrote the Book of Mormon, basically <laughs> what she said. You know, he, he didn't have the capacity to write the Book of Mormon at that time. And secondly, she said, uh, I saw personally that he had no notes in front of him, that he just dictated basically off the top of his head. When I say off the top of his head through revelation, he had no notes in front of him. And thirdly, she'd say, when he would take a break, he would come back and he wouldn't ask where he was. He would just pick up and translate. And that may not mean much to people, but I dictated for 34 years to a secretary and there would be an interruption or a phone call. And the first thing I would do is turn to my secretary and say, where was I? And then I'd pick up from there. But he never picked up where was I because he wasn't writing the Book of Mormon. He was translating as it was given to him by God. Who knows Joseph Smith best in that time period? It would have been Emma, what he was up to, his capabilities. I mean, I was just thinking about my husband, <laughs> like trying to imagine this in, in real time. My husband, he is a a brilliant man, but he is like the worst speller <laughs> you'll ever come across. <laughs> and if he claimed to have translated a book, I would know whether or not it was him or not, because he he's an atrocious speller. And I think, you know, he's written me, I don't know how many letters and notes in the course of our marriage. I know what his writing is like. And that would have been the same for Emma. Stephen Harper mentioning him again in my interview with him. He said, if you have questions about whether or not Joseph Smith was the author of this book, you, you need to go and read the other things that he wrote that he said were not <laughs> inspired. And starting with his, his autobiography, which he said was, was beautiful, but nowhere near <laughs> the caliber of what we see in the Book of Mormon, misplaced modifiers, really a lot of difficulty with punctuation. Clearly, he says, when you read what Joseph Smith wrote in other uh, entries in his journal, etc., you know that he was not capable of producing the Book of Mormon and additional scripture like the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the beautiful passages in those books. So as you had described, one of the great evidences of the Book of Mormon is the beautiful and profound doctrine that we find in, in its pages. The subtitle of the Book of Mormon is, it is another testament of Jesus Christ. What is it about the Book of Mormon that makes it particularly powerful in bringing us closer to Jesus Christ? Well, I think that is such a good question. And I think it is uh, partly because the doctrine of Christ is taught so clearly 
the plain and precious truths that were removed from the Bible, those plain and precious truths are in the Book of Mormon. And the more you learn about the doctrine of Christ, the more you love him and appreciate him and understand that he wants us to have the fullness of joy that he has. So I think the Book of Mormon, by giving us this profound doctrine, uh, enhances our understanding of the Savior, our appreciation for the Savior, and our appreciation for the suffering that he went through. And the glorious purpose that the atonement was not just to, Savior's atonement was not just to cleanse us, but also to perfect us. And I think that incredible vision gives us the greatest incentive and hope in life to know that no matter what our weakness may be, no matter our, uh, you know, our social shortcomings, whatever they may be, God says it makes no difference. You can become like me. And that's why the Savior said in the Book of Mormon, what manner of man ought ye to be, verily I say unto you, even as I am. So I think that doctrine, plus I think his ministry among the Nephites and his incredible love for the people, even weeping for them at times, can't help but touch not only the mind, but the heart to say, here's the most compassionate, loving, wise being in the universe who cares for us and wants us to become like he does. And when you read that, it makes you want to be like him. It makes you, that's why Joseph Smith said it's the most correct book on earth. And a person will get closer to God by reading this book than by any other book. I was reading a, a book by a fellow named David Ridges, and he said that the Book of Mormon mentions Christ in one form or another, on average, every 1.7 verses. I was floored by that. And I was actually just today preparing for this interview, listening to 3 Nephi 11 and the subsequent chapters after that, when the Savior is in the Americas. And I just, I love that we have additional witnesses and evidence of his love for us as he ministered to those people. But I am grateful for the Book of Mormon because it really clarifies again so much of who Christ is and what he, he does for us. He enables us through his atonement. I think one of the things that's consistent with what you've said there is that it, Book of Mormon uses the phrase infinite atonement. It tells us not only about the infinite atonement, but it also helps us know that it's intimate. Mm -hmm. And when he came, we realize that one by one, they feel the prints of the nails in his hands and his side. And one by one, he blesses them. And one by one, he sets apart his disciples. And one by one, people are baptized. And you realize that it's uh, not just a mass atonement that's uh, something infinite we can't understand, which we can't fully understand, but it's very personal and intimate in nature. And the Book of Mormon gives us those, uh, those both ends of the spectrum, I think, that's helpful to gain a greater appreciation for the Savior. Um, I was just thinking, along with that question, there will be people who listen to this episode who are struggling with their testimony of the Book of Mormon. What would your suggestion be to someone who has sincere questions about the Book of Mormon? Well, I think President Nelson gave us one insight as, to, as you go through the Book of Mormon, look for every reference to Christ and what you can learn about him. And the other is uh, try to set out what are the doctrines that are being taught 
and ask yourself as you go along, do I really believe that a man is teaching these doctrines has these profound insights at age 23? Do I really believe that a man at 23 has these insights into Jesus Christ, but is not inspired? And then when you do that, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I've got this shelf and, uh, you know, you say, put your questions on the shelf. And now I've had so many questions. The shelf has caved down, mm-hmm. fallen down. And I say, yeah, you know why the shelf came down? Because the shelf should have two supports. One of the supports is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And the other is that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. And once you know those two things, then what you're putting on is not doubts, but questions on the shelf. And it can hold up all the questions that you may have. So uh, I just think if you read it with trying to gain new insights into the Savior and and understanding the doctrine that's being taught, you'll come to the realization that no man could have brought that forth, that they're inspired of God. And then you can live with the other questions that you have. I know that the Lord desires to give us answers, but they will come in his time and allowing for sometimes... Uh, a space between <laughs> when we will have to live by faith. Yes. But I believe that answers come to those who continually seek. God honors our sincere questions, but to continue in faith and believe that those answers will come in due time. We should expect to have questions. You know, some people want a faith without questions. Well, that's not a faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. We should expect to have questions for multiple reasons. One is, uh, our minds can't comprehend everything that God would give us. It'd be like trying to teach calculus to a baby. <laughs> and uh, calculus is still true, but the baby can't get it until right. they matured. Well, some of the answers we just couldn't get because we don't have infinite like minds. Plus, the Lord told us that we would learn line upon line. And uh, plus, we know that he tests us and tries us sometimes with, uh, with faith and unanswered questions, but he's given us plenty. He's given us plenty. And that was that old statement, you remember, about don't lose faith in the many things you know because of a few things you don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the tragedy. And I had a missionary one time down in the Pacific. I was supervising that area, and a mission president called and said, This young man, you know, he's a pretty bright kid, but he just, doesn't know if he has a testimony of the church anymore. He said, would you at least talk to him? So I talked to him and I said, could you, I ask you a few questions. And he said, yes. I said, do you believe in the premortal existence of man? He said, oh yeah, that's, that's taught in the Bible. Jeremiah, he knew those scriptures. I said, do you believe that the gospel was preached in the spirit world to those who didn't have an opportunity to hear the gospel? Yes, he knew the scriptures in Peter. Do you believe in baptism for the dead? Well, yes, that's in the Bible. Do you believe there's one heaven or three heavens? No, I know it talks about the celestial, terrestrial, you know, sun, moon, stars, and that's that's it. Do you believe that uh, if Christ had 12 apostles, we don't have 12 apostles today? We ought to be the same church? Well, that makes sense to me. Do you believe that revelation ended with the Bible 100 AD? All of a sudden there was no more revelation or that we should have revelation today if Christ's church is on the earth, that we should have revelation today. Do you believe that families are eternal or they just kind of end at earth life? No, I've always believed that. 
I said, how many other churches do you know that teach any one, let alone of all those doctrines? He said, I, I never thought of that before. I said, well, this church just ruined you for any other. <laughs> you know too much. Once you know all that we know, people leave the church, I found they usually go down one or two roads. Either they become a church into themselves because they can't be happy with any other church because they know all that's missing, or they head down the road of atheism and don't believe in God. Once you know all we know in this church about the doctrines and the living prophets and the scriptures today, you will never be happy with any other church or philosophy. And I have seen that myself as I've watched people walk away. It's... They don't just leave the church, they leave God. Not in every case. Um, but I do believe, as you said, we know too much. <laughs> and we often, again, are flippant about what the restored gospel has given us. And so much of that is found in the pages of the Book of Mormon. And then modern prophets have helped us better understand those things that we read in scripture. Well, I'm so grateful for you, Brother Collister, for your testimony, uh, your, your scholarship. Your life is a testament to what you believe. Thank you for being a builder of this kingdom. Brother Collister, we always end our conversation on this podcast with this question. Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? I don't think you can be stagnant and... Uh and grow spiritually. You have to keep reading the scriptures every day. I do think what Harold Bailey said, if you don't read the scriptures every day, your testimonies are growing thinner. You're not staying the same. And uh, I think just like eating, we don't just eat on one day out of the year, all the food that we need for the rest of the year and call it good. We have to continually eat every single day to be healthy physically. So to be healthy spiritually, you have to keep growing, so to speak. We have to pray every day. We have to read the scriptures every day. We render service every day. Try to be obedient every day with a smile. And all of those things kind of inch by inch, foot by foot, hopefully take us forward on the path to eternal life. To be, and, and our goal is not just to return to God. Our goal, that's not eternal life. To return, true eternal life is to return to God and become like him, is to be exalted. The purpose of this gospel is not just to get people back to the celestial kingdom. The purpose of this gospel is to get people back to the presence of God and to be like him. Why? So they can have the fullness of joy that he has. And that's a process that's... Uh, step by step, scripture by scripture, prayer by prayer, service by service. And hopefully doing that makes us more godlike in, uh, in not what we do, but in who we become. Well, thank you again so much for your time and testimony for your service, Brother Collister. appreciate you being thank with you us too. today. Thank you for all you're doing for good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. 
Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks again for listening.